Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, I know you want to get to the podcast. I'm going to keep this short. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories you know, we every haven't damn done a roundup week. of other podcasts about opera late, lately. Uh, we, we, know we, we love Aria Code, but there are other shows out there. There's like Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, or Opera, Drugs, and Rock, is that what it's called? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but there are other people out there. So we don't know if, if other people are bringing people the stories they need to know every week. These are other really great yeah. opera podcasts for me to poop on. <laughs> hey, check it out. Five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month. Twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. So if you haven't seen our ads on social media, it's because we don't have five bucks. Or maybe five bucks isn't enough to cover our ads on social media or maybe we need to learn how to build the audience for those things look you know? 20 bucks that's enough to l- buy a face mask for our whole team so they don't catch coronavirus we can share the mask yeah that is not gonna work <laughs> yes right. the mask is not even gonna work we're all doomed the olympics are canceled thank you matt cummings look don't think you can give oh yes you can simply review us on apple podcasts share our facebook posts or just retweet okay. us and tell people hey i like this podcast and that guy oliver here he's Most of all, keep listening to America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about opera, period. You're not live. In the Lakeside Studio, not on WNUR this week, as with many college campuses around the country, Northwestern is shut down to all non-essential personnel for the foreseeable future. Nevertheless, Opera Box Score continues. George Cedarquist here, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. Strange how the whole team is on this episode, even though none of us are in the same place at all. All right, tonight, crunching the numbers with middle-class artist Zach Finkelstein. You know the website, middleclassartist.com. His recent blog posts have been a lot in the press recently about the effects of force majeure and the cancellation of contracts in the light of the COVID-19 virus. He's going to give us a deep dive into those numbers, but first... Weston inducts another legend into the OBS Hall of Fame. Many listeners are going to think his choice is right on the nose. And then Oliver, Matt, and Ashley do a two-minute drill. Crazy stories about Placido Domingo. When will a man go away? Hey, look, the stuff on ESPN right now is crazy. They are putting sports on ESPN that I've never even heard of. Not a lot of sports happening, of course, in the pro world, none at all. You might do worse than go to ESPN and check out just what exactly is on their platforms. All right, let's get down to it. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic yet humble salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. (laughs) 
Hello, everyone. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Weston Williams in the house. Welcome to my Hall of Fame segment for this episode. Pre-recorded so that no one can keep me in check. <laughs> Buckle up, folks. Today, we are talking about Dmitry Shostakovich. Fun fact about me, Dmitry's famous pictures wearing round glasses were the inspiration for my current style. So if you've ever wondered what I look like, just imagine the composer Dmitry Shostakovich wearing a fake beard and stilts. Uh, what we just heard there is a selection from Lady Macbeth of the Matensk District, sometimes referred to as Lady Macbeth of Matensk. Um, that's the version conducted by Mstislav Rostropovich, uh, which is uh, probably the definitive version in my opinion. Uh, but today we're going to be doing a slightly different tack. Um, Shostakovich is one of my favorite composers of all time. In many ways, his pieces can be uh, dour and a little bit pessimistic, but I've never encountered a composer that was always so bitingly funny in his compositional style. A lot of this is kind of through necessity. Um, Shostakovich was born in 1906, and therefore he had a front row seat for the Russian Revolution uh, growing up in that country. And when Stalin took power following Lenin's death in 1924, a new era of artistic suppression came with him, forcing Shostakovich to concentrate on non-vocal work for much of his career. Uh, the idea being that it's a lot harder to denounce a piece of music if there are no words that are saying something specifically political or subversive. Um, but because of that, he has this style that's very sarcastic, very funny, and there's so many hidden messages in his music. Uh, the most famous one is probably the D-S-C-H motif. Um, that's D, E-flat, C, and B for all you Americans out there. Um, in the German notational systems, E-flat uh, is referred to as S, and a B-natural is referred to as H. Thus, D-S-C-H means D. Shostakovich. So whenever you hear, dun, 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 you're always hearing uh, Shostakovich talking about himself without using any words at all. And it's this kind of specificity in his music, this very sort of clever subtext going on that defines a lot of his music and what makes it so interesting to me. But unfortunately, because of that, um, he only really wrote two complete uncensored operas um, that directly satirized contemporary Russian society. Uh, we're going to concentrate for today uh, on the first of these two, uh, the one, um, one that's uh, a lot funnier uh, and uh, in many ways lighter, but still no less biting. Uh, the great satire called The Nose. When Shostakovich completed The Nose in 1928, he was in his very early 20s, which was, you know, as someone who's in my now late 20s, I find extremely rude. Very early on in his career, he had gotten his hands on a score of Wozzeck, which premiered in 1922, and uh, he was inspired, and <laughs> aren't we all? Uh, already, uh, Shostakovich and I are just vibing so hard on the, the Wozzeck and the similar taste in eyewear, so he's, he's pretty great in my book. Um, but the thing that's really interesting about Shostakovich's relationship with Berg's music is that most people, uh, even today, when they first hear, uh, hear Wozzeck or, or, uh, or Lulu or, or anything from that early sort of German 
atonal period, you hear a lot of darkness, right? You hear the expressionism, the uh, uh, unapologetic bleakness. But where Shost, most people heard that, and Shostakovich heard it too, don't get me wrong, but he also heard the potential for humor. So Shostakovich uh, took the principles of Wozzeck's compositional style and applied them to comedy. So in order to make Wozzeck a comedy, what do you do? Well, Shostakovich's uh, solution was to really lean into the polystylistic uh, parts of the score. You'll hear uh, in Wozzeck, you'll hear like the, the, the accordion pieces, the little band music on stage, often at the most satirical moments. Shostakovich really leans into that. He references folk songs, um, but he keeps a lot of the atonality. He adds a, uh, Shostakovich adds a driving rhythm that doesn't exist in uh, Wozzeck or even indeed a lot of uh, early atonal uh, German music. Um, that gives the, the piece a lot of energy, a lot of comedic uh, punch. Uh, and uh, he also incorporates non-traditional operatic musical forms to hold everything together, uh, like, like say, a canon, um, in the same way that uh, Berg did with Wozzeck, but in a way that is that brings attention to it, makes it funny. Uh, and it really creates a, a sound world that w is really weird. Um, that you you don't hadn't really heard before, uh, and so in order to make that work, Shostakovich had to have uh, a, a story that was appropriately unusual, uh, and he found it in the, a story by Nikolai Gogol, also called The Nose. Uh, Gogol was an early nineteenth-century uh, uh, playwright, author, uh, poet. I think sometimes. He uh, and he was a forerunner of surrealism and absurdism. Shostakovich took the absurdism and turned it up to eleven, uh, creating this this whole soundscape that is very very distinctly Russian, but also not quite like anything that had been heard on a Russian opera stage before. Uh, and just check out these rhythms. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
I should say that uh, all of these clips are from the 1975 recording of The Nose, conducted by uh, Gennady Rostovensky. Uh, it's, uh, I would also recommend, if you like what you hear, you should also check out the Dergiev recording, which is a little bit more recent, but uh, I really like the, the fullness of the 1975 recording. Uh, this opera is so full of little interludes like this that employ an impressive range, especially of percussion instruments. You have to remember that the Western classical percussion ensemble was in its infancy at this point. The first well-known uh, classical piece to be played entirely by a percussion ensemble uh, that was still six years away from its premiere, and I'm referring to Ionization by Edgar Varese, um, six years after this opera. So th there's a whole section in this opera which is just unpitched percussion. It uh, It's sort of a dream sequence near the beginning. I won't play that today because of time, but um, it's really well worth checking out. But the percussion and the rhythms, the really sharpness of the rhythms, depends on this unpitched and pitched percussion in a way that you hadn't really heard before. And yet it's so... It's so Russian. It's so familiarly Russian. Shostakovich is very much inspired by um, Mazorsky, and and everything is is has this basis in a Russian sound that feels particularly avant-garde. I think to to Western ears, but also so grounded in a way that a lot of Western atonality is not. Um, but of course, he didn't just use atonality. Uh, the, the rhythms create a fun energy even when you're sort of crashing into traditional tonality. Um, and there's also references to popular Russian music from the time period. It's, it's super chaotic, but it's also virtuosically precise for the entire orchestra. No one has an easy time reading this piece. You got to be on it. There's, there's uh, abrupt shifts of mood. There's extremely specific rhythms. There's extremely specific harmonies. And he like really internalized all of it. Famously, um, uh, this opera flopped when it first premiered because uh, it was uh, it was done in concert against his wishes, and people just didn't know what to make of it um, um, because the story is so important. Uh, but uh, fifty years later, almost fifty years later. Um, it, it was revived for the first time, and Shostakovich came to the rehearsals because he was still alive at that point. Um, and he listened to the entire thing, and then once the rehearsal was over, he went and corrected people without looking at a score. He remembered, oh, in you know, in the middle of Act Two, Bar Seventy Five, you know, the oboe uh, played the wrong note, just completely by memory. He knew this piece backwards and forwards because it was so precise so precisely orchestrated, so precisely rhythmically important. It, it's, it's an extraordinary little piece. So let's talk about the weirdness of the story. So the story begins with uh, a character named Platon Kuzmich Kol, uh, Kovalov. Kol, eh, Kovalyov. <laughs> Platon Kuzmich Kolyovov. Uh, he's getting a shave from his barber. But this ain't Rossini, folks. After complaining about how much the barber's hands stink, he heads home and goes to sleep only to find out that his nose is completely missing the next morning. 
uh, he suspects the uh, the barber might have chopped it off, and the barber thinks he might have too, but they can't find the nose. Um, it, it, so most of the story is Kovalyov uh, searching for his missing nose. He goes from one location to another. He talks to police. He talks to uh, um, the press. He gets laughed at, and he finally finds his nose in the Kazan Cathedral. But the nose is now walking around by itself. <laughs> it's human-sized, and it somehow has acquired a government job that actually outranks uh, the owner of the nose, Kovalyov himself. Um, uh, and no one seems to address the fact that there's a, just a giant nose walking around. They all think he's crazy when he points it out. But there's a really sort of beautiful break in the music because a lot of the music is really intense staccato kind of Charlie Chaplin, Monty Python um, zaniness. Uh, but when he goes into the cathedral, there's this there's this change into the sound of the cathedral. It, it, uh, what had been a, a really precise, fast sound world becomes this big cavernous sound uh, using uh, some subtle um, percussion instruments to give a lot of depth, a lot of emptiness. You hear a chorus, a woman singing. It's a genuinely almost reverent moment that that is just absurd enough to sell the strangeness of meeting your own nose in a massive church.
Eventually, uh, Kovalyov gets the police to believe that his nose is missing and uh, currently running around as a member of the government. Uh, and uh, uh, rumors go abound. A mob comes together to capture the nose. There's a big sort of a climactic scene where they all kind of swarm on the nose and they literally beat him into submission and it returns to his normal size. Uh, so he gets his nose back, but it won't stick on his face. <laughs> and after a few more shenanigans where he uh, sends a letter to someone who he thinks can magically put his nose back on, which is misinterpreted as a proposal, uh, he finally goes to sleep and he wakes up miraculously with the nose back in place. And he goes back to his old self, having learned precisely nothing from his weird, weird experience. Uh, and it's such a, a Shostakovich moment at the end to kind of learn nothing and sort of keep going. But it's it's really profoundly funny. Uh, I should say that Shostakovich's operatic career is fairly short-lived. Nowadays, he's mostly known for his symphonies. But uh, if you've never heard uh, his operas, uh, that being The Nose, Lady Macbeth of the Tense District, and some of his uncompleted The Gambler, I highly, highly recommend you look into them. Um, after The Nose, he composed uh, Lady Macbeth, which is a lot darker, uh, a lot sort of, uh, a lot more directly um, satirical uh, about Soviet authority right at a time in the 1930s when Stalin was really sensitive to those sorts of things. So despite getting really, really good initial reviews for that opera, uh, Stalin personally saw it. And there's a, a really harrowing story of how uh, Shostakovich was told to come to this performance of his opera, um, Lady Macbeth. And he, he didn't know why he'd been summoned there. And he went and he saw that Stalin was there. And Stalin was frowning at all the wrong times, laughing at all the wrong times, and left before uh, before the end of the show. And uh, he, Shostakovich was just sweating bullets. And sure enough, the next day, Pravda, the state newspaper, um, uh, called it muddle instead of music um, and basically censured him. And Shostakovich essentially swore off operas for pretty much the rest of his career. Uh, he did eventually do a censored version of Lady Macbeth. Uh, and, of course, there are some operatic song cycles and symphonies in his repertoire. Um, but but that pretty much ended his operatic career. But what a glorious career it was. You know, it's a difficult time for a lot of artists right now. And uh, as a composer living under a highly authoritarian re regime, I really find... Uh, Shostakovich an inspiration for me personally as an artist in hard times uh, I've, I've never been a quote kind of guy but this one by Shostakovich has always struck a chord with me uh, and if you right now are feeling powerless or unable to create what you want to create I think it might resonate for you too this is Shostakovich if they cut off both my hands I will compose music anyway holding the pen in my teeth. I'll close out tonight with a surprisingly tuneful interlude where Kovalyov's servant plays a nice little tune on his balalaika amidst the chaos of absurdity and lost noses. Yes. 
subject to interpretation and analysis. Let's crunch the numbers. All right. Well, we've had him on the show before. He is the man behind the Middle Class Artist website, middleclassartist.com. Classical tenor Zach Finkelstein joins us from his bunker in Seattle. Uh, Zach, thanks so much again for being on the show with us. Thanks a lot, man. I'm, I'm happy to be back. I actually listened to uh, Oliver's take on, on everything uh, like a couple weeks ago or last week, and it's actually a really good summary for the press call. So thanks for Oliver for summarizing my work so well. <laughs> um, gosh, things are so different, of course, since you were last on the show in uh, a year or two ago. Let's just start with some definitions, Zach. The, the thing that's popped up in a lot of your posts, of course, is this phrase, force majeure, which I think the last time I came across that was like in a French restaurant. So tell us what that is. Sort of a, there's sort of a kink in our contracts where, um, you know, in case of force majeure or act of God, uh, understandably the presenter has to be presented. And what it says is, um, you know, uh, the artist and the presenter is under no liability um, to fulfill the contract in case of uh, force majeure. And that includes an epidemic. So, you can imagine, you know, watching, you know, I'm a, I'm a news hound, so I've been watching, I, at the time I was watching and listening to the news coming out of China, and uh, my sister's an epidemiologist, so I was, you know, my, my senses were heightened. Um, and uh, and I also have been hearing some things from some very famous opera singers that they were in trouble. So um, I put this piece together and, um, you know, outlined that um, because of our, uh, the risk in our contracts, um, the, the artist doesn't actually have a say in any of this. So what happens is the presenter, um, you know, if, if they can't, so we understand they have to be protected, let them run for us as well. Um, but what, what it means is they can basically cancel whenever they want, including in the middle of rehearsals. So, and that leads to the second problem, um, which is that artists are paid almost all of the time in every contract, uh, 100% upon completion of the contract. So I don't know if you work in any other businesses, but, uh, you know, I work in research analytics um, on, in my, in my uh, dual career, I'm taught. Um, and if I had told my boss, hey, you know, we did $10,000 for the calling and $20,000 for the research, but, um, you know, I'm sure they're going to pay us at the end of it. It'll be great. Um, he would probably fire me. So, but that's how all our, all our contracts are currently structured. Um, so what ends up happening, and the, the second part of that is our expenses um, are often covered by artists up front. Um, so, you know, someone doing a scholar contract in Milan, which you may know is in Italy, which you may know is in a lot of trouble right now, um, they may be contracted for, say, a six-week rehearsal period and two weeks of performances, and they are not paid until the last performance often. Um, and uh, and what ends up happening, and they are also um, often not reimbursed for travel and housing until afterwards. So, you know, if you have a gig in July in Milan, and um, you know the, the flights are pretty 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 expensive. You're gonna wanna you're gonna wanna book that early. You know you might book that in January, February, and you know maybe they take a little extra time to reimburse you. So what ends up happening is artists are giving an eight month floating interest free loan to presenting organizations for their expenses to be paid back whenever, and they're also only paid their artist fees when they complete the contract. So this is like the perfect storm for force majeure. So when force majeure is called, um, artists. Uh, often in the middle of contracts, who have, pres- who have spent thousands of dollars training uh, for this role, um, who have flown there on their own dime, who have stayed there on their own dime in short-term housing, and spent like $3,000 a month. Um, you know, they put 
usually four or five credits with a $20,000 contract, $30,000 contract. So when someone cancels on you at the last minute, not only do you lose that income, but you also lose all the work and all the expenses. And they're under no obligation to pay you back because, you know, they're in trouble. And, you know, force majeure, what are you going to do? So that's ba- that's the basic problem of force majeure. And so, I mean, what are we going to do, right? Like how does one combat this if you're a singer or presumably a director or a designer or a choreographer or a dancer or a chorister? Like what recourse do you have and at what point? Recently, you have no recourse. So what basically happens is, you know, your top flight agent, who you're kind of a little scared of, and who's a little more powerful than you are in your relationship, and um, they copy or they email the executive director, the manager, the director, and they hammer out the details, and then they hand you the contract and they say, "Here's your contract, sign it." Um, and every single time, there's a force majeure clause. So, are you gonna say no to the Met? Because um, I know a lot of people who wouldn't. I mean, I know personally I will never be offered a contract at the Met because of my articles, so that's fine. Let's let's talk about the Met. So this was a week ago that the Metropolitan Opera decided not to pay its contracted soloists. Um, I mean, what was what was the feeling on that in the industry, and what was the response? So the Met is kind of a multi-part story. Um, I and I broke the the Met the initial story about. Um, the Met not paying its soloist for the remainder of the month, um, citing force majeure, as we talked about, um, and telling its soloists by tweet. Um, and they decided to follow that up in, uh, you know, a week later by not paying anyone, including chorus and um, orchestra and a few other people, although a few of them do get their health benefits. So they're not making any money, but, you know, they got health care, whatever. Um, you know, and, uh, and so all those people are now out the rest of the season and uh, some of them weren't even communicated to. Um, I know I personally know at least a couple people who still have not received a single communication about it from the Met. Um, I know some people like Jamie Barton, who has been public with it, um, that she was told by tweet that she was fired, uh, laid off from the rest of the season. Um, and so and on the same day of that, uh, the Met announced a 60 million dollar fundraising campaign. So they fired their biggest author stars in the world with a tweet and then. They released their big old $60 million fundraising campaign to save the Met. And uh, I got to tell you, um, it's going to be a tough sell without any singers. Um, you know, who's going to do your gala concerts? Who's going to do your salon shows? Who's going to do the glad handing? You know, you're not going to get, um, you know, a lot of the people who are on stage at the Met right now to help you out and amplify and boost your message. Um, so, and, and the absolute kicker on this story is they fired or they laid off all their musicians, hundreds of people. And guess how many administrative staff are still on? I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you because it's gonna burn you with rage, and that number is 100%. They have kept all their administrative staff on. They are asking for 60 million dollars, and they laid off every single musician through the end of the year. Some of whom will be bankrupt by the end of the season. It does make you wonder what those administrators are administrating at this point. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, oh, what what is an assistant artistic administrator at the Met doing right now? Because they are not reaching out to singers, that's for sure. They're not contracting anyone because they don't have any money. What are they doing? Well, like, why does that person need to be paid $80,000 or whatever they're paid, and you can't give 10% to your musicians? Like, why are those people still there? So our biggest opera house in this country is kind of in the 
lowest position at this point in terms of this issue. Who's who's doing the heavy lifting? Who is guaranteeing to honor these artistic contracts? And why? So the, More the importantly, biggest, why? Oh yeah, as part of middle class artists, um, I've had access to a lot of different sources. And um, I was lucky enough to talk to the general director and uh, in an interview, and I broke the guaranteeing to honor all its artistic contracts in 2020 uh, through the summer festival. Des Moines Metro Opera. Yeah, this is Des Moines Metro Opera. So um, I'm not, I don't, I didn't work with them, but as far as I know, their summer season is sort of the whole ball of wax. Um, So what they're really saying, I think, is that they're paying their artists through 2020. Um, And this is not just the soloists. Let's just be clear. Um, This is the artists, the musicians, designers, production personnel. So, and they had publicly guaranteed that whether or not force majeure happens, whether or not an act of God, an epidemic, you know, Godzilla, whatever, um, whether or not one comes through, they are coming through for their musicians. And the the letter that, that uh, Michael wrote to his singers, I don't know if we have time, but I mean, it's such a powerful note if you let me read it. Go for it. It's only three paragraphs. Okay. Uh, and I might tear up because this, this letter made me cry. Um, at Des Moines Metro Opera, we speak often about family. For 48 seasons, our strength has been our people, people like you who have rallied around the creation of something bigger than ourselves. There's a sense of belonging that infuses everything we do. It draws together a community of artists, musicians, designers, and production personnel each summer to create incredible and imaginative performances. Our artists and staff are the heart, soul, and backbone of our company. We are strong today because of your voices, vision, and talent. Those of you on the audience side of the stage are the beneficiaries of your increasingly breathtaking work every summer. We want to assure you at this time that our plans and preparations for the upcoming 2020 summer festival season are moving forward. They put this in bold. Visual and creative teams have been instructed to continue creating full steam ahead. If we encounter challenges, we will look for other avenues. Of course, we continue to monitor government recognitions and information, et cetera. But I want to, I write to you to reaffirm the value that we place on you, your work, and its importance to our thriving company. Tonight, the Des Moines Metro Opera Board of Directors and I have committed to honoring all existing contracts with artistic personnel for the 2020 summer festival season, regardless of whether or not we are able to gather in person at the end of May. We have weathered many storms, both literal and figurative. I know we will weather this one as well. When today's challenges are behind us, we will have greater need than ever for live performance. And we hope that this assurance to you will position all of us to be there when the time comes. For now, we look forward to seeing you this summer. Michael Eagle. Zach Finkelstein on Opera Box Score. He's reading the letter from uh, Michael Eagle, the artistic director of Des Moines Metro Opera. Why are you so moved by that, Zach? Because I have, you know, in this, in, in the weeks I've been building these stories, I have heard I, I mean, I have published maybe 1% of what's going on. Um, and I know a lot of dirty secrets, which I'm not going to say, but there are some people at the highest levels who are desperately trying to pay their artists and they can't. There are some people that are uh, not paying their artists. And I'm just, I have to wait and see because, you know, this is a story still in development. Like, they're trying, maybe, I don't know, but they're probably not trying. They're probably trying more to do what the Mets doing. But the Mets was just the worst case scenario. I mean, that was just, I had to talk about that. Um, but there there are other that have been paid, a lot of them. Um, and I'm sort of waiting to see how that story develops. 
Um, but the Mormons, you get a sense that, I mean, like you said, you get a sense that they are a family and that he puts artists first no matter what. And the fact that, that someone who is, you know, at a mainstream opera company is really just going above and beyond. And like, this is going to cost him and the company millions of dollars because there's a very good chance there will not be a summer festival. Let's just be honest. And the fact that he's willing to step up is just so moving and, and uh, warms my heart. And it really, um, this story has made an impact with the community as well. If we move down this opera ecosystem a little bit, right from the Met to a major summer festival like Des Moines down to some of the really, really small companies, full disclosure, I run one of them here in Chicago. Uh How would one make this decision, which we ourselves had to make, which was to, uh, to want to pay your artists, knowing that if you pay them without any box office receipts from that show, it will mean the end of the company. How, how do you reconcile those two things? So, as I said, I think there are companies that can pay their artists with a great struggle and stepping up and going back to their owners and hitting the phones. And there are some companies that just can't. And we're not going to know who's who until it's over. I will say that a shocking number of small companies have stepped up. Um, and, um, and I will also say that singers will have a very long memory of this moment and they will know who has our backs and who tried to have our backs and who doesn't have our backs. So I think that's, you know, for you, it seems like as long as you communicate with your singer and keep them in the loop and tweet about it, and, you know, as long as you're clear and empathetic, I think singers will understand because it is a tough, it's a tough time for everyone, including presenters. I'm not trying to go after anybody except for doing that. But I'm not I'm really trying not to try to turn this into a hit list. This was the whole idea was to tell stories about people who, under the worst odds, great sacrifices for their artists and came through. You told me that you've gotten more pessimistic over the last week. What are you more pessimistic about? So the big thing that came out this week, I mean, not everything is about the Met, but everything is kind of about the Met. I mean, they are the biggest company and they are just getting crushed right now and their PR is a disaster. But anyway, the main thing to come out of the Met that made me write this story is the number 60 million. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a data guy. Um, and 60 million, when you're not paying your artists, is a big freaking number. Um, you know, that is 20% of their annual revenue, 20%. So without paying a bunch of people who are making six figures, they're still not going to hit the revenue by 20% this year. That is a shocking amount. Um, so if they're in that much trouble, I mean, they are financially reckless as a company under Peter Gell, but, you know, even then they have deep pockets, you know, they have an endowment, um, they have money. Um, so to hear that they need $60 million to survive was, I was like, whoa, this is a huge story outside of the Met. It's not even about the Met anymore. So I'm just thinking of a world. So this, the COVID-19 epidemic, I'm not an epidemiologist, but it's very clear to me um, by both our government's inept response, by the fact that uh, people still refuse to social distance and there are conflicting social distancing mechanisms in our country. Um, we are not China, we are not South Korea. Um, who can, China took almost five months to contain it. Um, so the idea that there is going to be any summer season to me based on our containment measures is 
I mean, a pipe dream, I think. If you look at the research done in the Great Recession, um, wealthy donors, uh, they, they stopped giving, uh, about, they gave about 8%, 8.5% less after the Great Recession. Um, and it took six years for that number to go back up. Six years. These are donations and the great re- donors. Yeah. These are, these are giving numbers for, to nonprofits. So this is not specific to the cultural sector. It's not specific to the med. But, but anyway, that's a general sense. So put these two numbers together. So the season that we just lost is going to cost companies at a minimum 20%. And the companies that paid their artists, way more, way more. Um, so they're going to have a 20% fundraising gap on last year. And then the next season, they're probably going to have at least an 8% dip. And that is generous because this is not the Great Recession. We have essentially, social distancing is just a, a nice fancy word for, for hitting the power button on your economy and turning it off like a computer. We have no idea what's going to happen when we reboot. Musicians should be prepared for another force majeure. Um, and they should be prepared to not have singing um, income for at least 18 months. And they should be prepared for their full time to not have full employment in the performance sector for years. And I know that sounds radical now, but man, I wrote the, I wrote the force majeure article on March 2nd and I made some pretty radical um, predictions and they pretty much all come true. So, um, you know, I, based on the information I have, based on my economics background, based on the new data available, I think we are looking at a seismic existential uh, extinction event for classical music. I don't know who's going to get out, and I think it would be irresponsible of me to to say that on the record. But I will say um, this is going to be a permanent change for what performing arts means in the future in America. Zach Finkelstein of the Middle Class Artist website, middleclassartist.com. He's a classical tenor. He's a numbers guy. He's a great writer. He's a parent. Zach, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week. Placido Domingo has resigned from the American Guild of Musical Artists and has donated $500,000 to a fund that helps opera employees in crisis due to the coronavirus outbreak. The money will also go to sexual harassment eradication programs. With the resignation, the union announced that all charges against Domingo were withdrawn. A day later, (sighs) Domingo announced that he has tested positive for coronavirus. The Metropolitan Opera has canceled the remainder of the 1920 season and laid off all union employees, including the orchestra and chorus. The Met will continue to stream free encore presentations from its archive of live and HD performances on the company website and its various platforms. Taking a lead from our friend Zach Finkelstein, the New Yorker's Emily Witt describes the economic fallout of the coronavirus in the performing arts sector, highlighting the fault lines in the arts economy. Quote, the government might bail out the auto, airline, and banking industries, but it generally leaves the arts to survive a drop in philanthropic giving on their own. A link to the full article can be found on our website, operaboxscore.com. The Royal Academy of Music has named Brenda Hurley its new head of opera. Effective July 2020, Hurley comes to the Royal Academy from the International Opera Studio in Zurich, where she's been the director since 2012. 
On Thursday, members of the Orchestra of Opera Australia rallied outside the head of office of Australia's largest performing arts company. They gathered in protest, performing their instruments over the company's decision to stand down musicians without pay just days after it canceled the remainder of its season. Moving over to dancing news, a dancer has been fired from South, South Korea's National Ballet Company for inappropriate behavior after breaking his coronavirus quarantine. A disciplinary, a disciplinary committee meeting was held on Monday where the decision was made to fire a 20-year-old corps de ballet dancer for traveling to Japan during a self-quarantine period. More information on Dancing Box Score, our other website. <laughs> The Atlanta Opera has announced that its costume shop will be producing medical supplies for area hospitals. Per a press release, all costume shop employees will be dedicating their working hours to the effort. The Guardian has published a handy list of operas and concerts to stream at home, including performances from Opera North, Teatro Reggio di Torino, and Bayerische Staatsoper. We're sure there are many more, but we thought that this list was convenient, so find a link on our website operaboxscore.com and on this day March 23rd it's the 87th birthday of English baritone Norman Bailey we celebrate the birthday anniversaries of French soprano Régine Crespin born this day in 1927 British contralto Monica Sinclair born in 1925 and Austrian composer Franz Schreckert 1878 that one's for you Weston in 1923 Manuel de Falla's opera Master Peter's <laughs> Puppet Show premiered at Teatro San Fernando Daniel Aubert's Everyone should do that opera. Absolutely. Daniel Aubert's <laughs> Le Cheval de Bronze premiered in Paris in 1835. In the Baroque era, March 23rd marks the day Vivaldi was ordained as a priest. That was in 1703. Bach's St. Mark Passion, the music of which is lost, premiered in Leipzig in 1731. And the London version of Handel's Messiah enjoyed its premiere at Covent Garden in 1743. You see, when I'm in control of the two-minute drill, we do oratorios. Finally, yeah. yesterday, March 22nd, was Stephen Sondheim's 90th birthday. Tanti auguri, Maestro Sondheim. And that's your two-minute drill. Gotta love Rasheen Crispin. I mean, I, I've, I've heard some people say also that hers was one of the largest voices that they've ever heard live. It, it doesn't record as big as some of the other ones that you think of in that category, but that when you heard it live, it was like being smacked in the face. It was just so enormous. Yeah, it has one of those tone qualities where you, you can sense from recordings that there's a lot of edge in the sound, and I'm sure it just penetrated and just sliced right through like a knife through a warm butter. No, no, a warm knife through butter because warm butter is very easy to slice. <laughs> <laughs> so, folks, this we is a very... We call it a hot knife through butter. But there yeah, you go. That works for me. Hot knife through butter. This is a very ghetto setup. I want our audience to know that we are trying to come up with solutions for how to keep this podcast going and maintain... It's very... Our social distance. language, Oliver. I, uh, yes. 
I like to use the phrase frontier medicine. We're, we're doing a little frontier medicine. <laughs> so just so you understand what's going on, George has recorded his third of the podcast in his home. We have an interview with Zach Ficklestein today. Weston did his uh, Shostakovich Hall of Fame. And I was sort of chiding um, Weston because he wanted to do a Franz Schrecker Hall of Fame. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe when you know we're back together in the studio, we can really uh, you know, get off the beaten path. But I feel like people need a little bit more comfort, a little more familiar, familiarity in this time. And so Shostakovich was the says, solution. What? Yeah, what says comfort more than a man brutally oppressed by totalitarianism? <laughs> but I'm sure it's good. I haven't heard it yet, but we'll, we'll all enjoy it together. And uh, I'm here in my apartment in Logan Square, Chicago, and Ashley's in her apartment, and Matt's in his. And we're using Skype conference call. And everybody's up with the Zoom, but I'm not zoom zooming yet so I, I don't even know what zoom is i just keep seeing people talking about it so i can get you on zoom because i use zoom in my in my day life but i believe skype will work just fine for what we need it to be right now it's zoom like video microsoft p is it zoom conference type of thing <laughs> this one's brand new too yeah zoom also does video um which can be very very handy um but you also can turn the video off if you don't want to be seen or if you have not yet done your makeup for your 10 a.m. Yeah. meeting, which definitely was me this morning. And uh, me most mornings. I'm going to have to not let people look at me for a long time after the Zohar. Like, I'm not getting haircuts. I'm eating a lot of carbs. It's just look Well, away. you can't get haircuts, Oliver. It's You're being responsible. Yes, yes, yes. You're doing, you're doing the safe thing. Here's and what I, I will I was... say. <laughs> oh, no, here's, what, here's what I will say is that... Uh, you know, a lot of people have been like, oh, well, we need to use this time to be productive. Sure, if, if that's what you need to do. But I also think that some people need to give themselves a moment to kind of rest and breathe. Us to getting past the shock of, of this new normal. What I will say, though, that I've been using in terms of making the most of my time is I have dedicated myself to some skincare. Hmm. A mask every day. I'm going to have the best skin of my life by the time this is all over <laughs> with. I'm going to look a hundred years younger by the time this is over. Be careful with uh, those masks. Just reminded all of our listeners out there yeah. who <laughs> uh, the, that might be struggling with this as much as I am. I drink so much more water when I'm than when I'm at home. Like, I I have been severely dehydrated this past hmm. week. So, everyone should drink more water. It's almost always good advice. Ashley, I was going to say, don't use all of your masks because if there is a, a toilet paper shortage, you're going to want to use that mask on your Hoo-ha. Fair, fair. Right? Gonna, That's a big Yeah, I mean, yeah. desperate times call for desperate measures, but we're, we're not quite there yet. Um, I definitely, I, I, I don't, you know, I'm not a doomsday prepper, but I definitely have enough things in my home to kind of be okay and get by. I will say that I went to grab some groceries uh, right before I kind of did a self-imposed uh exile is what we'll call it and they did not have actual toilet tissue but they had a box of dude wipes and i was like listen i live alone <laughs> no one knows i'm not a dude i bought a box of those dude wipes and so they're they're my extra stash so public service announcement from uh ballet box score and opera box score um don't flush wipes down the toilet and don't flush paper towels down the toilet no you're, don't you're gonna yeah, even flushable even flushable wipes are are not very flushable. Everything should go in the garbage. Yeah. Uh, or just rinse them and reuse them. So. All right. Yeah, that's frontier medicine. 
So let's talk about what happened with Domingo lately. Oh, what with didn't Parch. happen with Domingo lately? <laughs> Poor guy. It's like the crosshairs of everything that we're talking about at once. I mean, so, yeah. So, big shocker. He resigned from AGMA, which I don't think it was a surprise to anybody. I hadn't thought that far ahead, but as soon as I read the headline, I was like, of course he did, because this is clearly the country that's that's going to forgive him the least in the event that we start caring about this sort of stuff again. Um, I do love that the, the article said that the 500 grand that he donated was both for the coronavirus outbreak and also to sexual harassment eradication programs. Like, really? So is there, are they going to go half? Sure I'm sure there's going to be a lot left over with after the corona coronavirus relief. Hey, Dio mio. It was uh yeah, I I read it and my my heart sank even further than it already did. But then my heart lifted just a little bit when I saw that he tested positive for coronavirus. Oh. Well, I don't know. I mean, Rand Paul's also got it, so maybe uh I'm the Go on. There's something to the karma of, of Rand Paul being the person who voted against the first relief bill and being the first senator to come down with it, but it's, you know, I don't I don't feel good for anyone that's going to get it from these people for the most, no. for especially. And that that's the that's the hardest thing here is just like how hard it is to control. Right. I mean, that's that's part of it. I mean, we're seeing in our we're seeing in our own city we're seeing in the in the networks of people that we care about we're seeing with our you know many friends that i know we have over in new york city who are who are undergoing you know sort of the same set of circumstances that we are that it's you know there's a we don't know what we don't know yet about this you know i was sitting on this very podcast just a couple of weeks ago being like let's just be careful let's be safe but let's not panic and then i was immediately knocked out with like a grave illness uh so i as much as I'm not eating my words, I'm like, this just lets you know we don't know what we don't know. Hmm. And it's it's so disorienting the fact that you don't have time as a good barometer anymore because everything mm-hmm. is functioning everything is functioning in this like non-linear sense of time where every day is an eternity and also about four years worth of news passes before noon. Exactly. And the set of guidelines that you have to go by to help predict your own next few hours changes every few hours. I think that's been, you know, if we're talking about kind of how we're handling all of this, the, the most challenging part for me, besides getting sick right when the pandemic began, but was um, the, the uncertainty of it all. You know, if if we could give ourselves in our own brains an end date, like we're going to, for the time being, we do this and then it'll be over uh, May 4th, you know, like that would that would give us a place yeah. to kind of focus our sights and our time on. But because it's so open-ended, I think that at least for me adds to the end certainty and the anxiety around all of the circumstances and that what is going into the calculations of companies like the metropolitan opera when they figure that they can't afford to keep anyone on payroll you know like the first time i read through the first time i read through that article and heard that they were invoking for majeure which slip disclaim was the first time they've ever invoked it i don't know if that's true i couldn't verify that elsewhere um just the fact that they you know recently got through you know in the past 10 years they've had two pretty contentious sets of union negotiations yeah and they emerged from both of those with like a pretty striking show of solidarity uh and then to just to immediately read the headline of the story in the first paragraph or so it sounds like the rug is just being ripped 
ripped out from underneath all, the, all these union employees. And to an extent, it is. You know, to, to an extent, it, it, it's awful. Uh, what is good that is not really getting brought up everywhere is that they do get to maintain their benefits and they're yeah. being furloughed, not totally laid off, uh, which I don't think has actually really been accurately captured in most of the discussion about this because most of the discussion has has focused on the fact that they are not getting paid, which is a huge issue. Don't get me wrong, and I'm not totally and I'm not writing it off that that, but that could be, yeah. No, it could. Right. The house could go under. Honestly, um, I was I was listening to the. Under. You know, there's such a there's such a small margin of error. Or... Yeah, I was listening. Ooh, was that Oliver? Oh, I'm sorry. It, it's Skype is not my friend today. I was listening to the Met broadcast on Saturday. They rebroadcast Chenarentola from years and years ago when Joyce Donato was still singing that role, and in the intermission feature, um, Mary Jo Heath interviewed Peter Gelb. And I was expecting him to say something about, you know, that we had to lay off the orchestra and chorus and we're doing our best. But he didn't talk about it at all. He just said, you know, tune in to the HD, uh, I mean, to go to our website and watch opera, <laughs> like watch the week of Wagner that's coming up. And yeah, nothing about like all the stuff that we're talking they're about. Worried, so. They're worried about losing some, they're worried about losing subscriptions and donors. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and in a, yeah, and, and I understand that. I mean, it mid mid-sized companies in some ways are are the most at risk in the long game, but they're not quite like it's pretty perilous for an, an opera company with the kind of operating budget that the Metropolitan Opera has in New York City, uh, with payrolls that long. It it's hard to imagine that they would be able to find the money to pay for those people when they're losing. Revenue. I mean, on the other hand, I, I would, I kind of would have hoped that a caliber would have tried to figure out something with all the well-heeled donors. You, I mean, it's it, it's hard to believe that no one there was willing to give any money towards housing the chorus and orchestra. Well, um, the article in The New Yorker is one of a few that has come out in mainstream media that's talking about the effect to the arts economy. And I really like this one because she really advocated for what artists feel. And there was a quote from some artists that she interviewed, um, and I'll read it. I don't know the name of the artist, but I can read the quote. There is a particular kind of disapproval reserved for artists and those whose chosen careers, however, however fulfilling they may be, only very rarely results in material prosperity. Under a certain American logic, if you are lucky enough not to be structurally impoverished, mm -hmm. if you have the privilege of choosing a career, then pursuing a living that falls outside the social safety net in a job you might actually like is a play at your own risk endeavor. In this moment, people shame me. They shame artists like, why don't you have six months of savings? So yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm somebody who's all my skills. I think I talked about this last week are like in the restaurant business or in singing or teaching, and uh, those are all things that are not available to me <laughs> right now. So here yeah, I am. Yeah, it's that fast cash turnover. It's you know, and when they say, "Why don't you have six months of savings?" I'm like, "Uh, same goes for you, United and American, and all of these <laughs> airlines that are panicking about going under." And we didn't do stock buyback <laughs> to, to fatten our exec 
pocket his wallets. You know? Hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, it's hard. Um, you know, I, I've got... I, I'm one of the folks that's kind of in, in this orbit, but I'm not as directly in this orbit as a lot of my close friends and colleagues are. And seeing sort of the levels of survivorship that are coming out of this. There are some people whose, you know, every ounce of revenue generation that they have for the foreseeable future is just gone. Uh, and then and there are others who have, you know, supplemented external revenue sources that are still going either in the form of salaried employment or some sort of a contract that some angel saint of a company is still going to honor. Uh, and there's a lot of levels of, uh, of panic, but also survivor's guilt that I see rotating around where people feel like they, they not only need to panic for the revenue streams that they've lost, but they need to collectively panic for the people who are doing worse off than them. Yeah. Well, too bad for Brenda Hurley, who got a brand new job uh, at oh. Royal Academy Music. Uh, good for her, but uh, not a great time to be at the helm of any organization. <laughs> Just managing a loss at this point. So it's going to be a trial by fire. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say though, like that's that's a whole other when we're looking at you know, sort of performing arts organizations, performing arts education organizations are almost like a whole other beast, especially if we're looking at like the higher education, the conservatory style of training, um, that this is an, an area of the world where I kind of overlap in a couple of different areas here. And there's a whole other set of conversations there about how, how they're going to stay afloat because for them, it's not just about production. It's about, it's about recruiting and enrolling and retaining students and, you know, the, these were already, you know, sort of rough waters to begin with before we got into whatever you want to call this, a pandemic, a crisis, what have you. But schools in the next year are going to have to get really, really creative in in their policies, in their guidelines, in their regulations on how they teach and who they will teach because the, the supply is just shorter. It's going to be shorter than it was before. And it's going to be especially different for fields where you need this kind of one-on-one -on -one hands-on instruction too it's not the same thing as like a law professor talking about torts exactly well on a good note the atlanta opera is using their costume shop to do something to contribute to the relief efforts um so thank you atlanta opera and maybe other costume shops will take up their example i i saw similar exchanges on twitter but between uh, the Broadway costume unions and mm -hmm. Andrew Cuomo's office, that they were like, put us to work, send us the templates. And yeah. the, the governor's office was answering, being like, we'll email you within the hour. And it really seems like they did. So there are some rays of hope. You just gotta I mean, yeah, now you gotta, I mean, speaking of rays of hope, number, well, uh, two rays of hope. Number one, Stephen Sondheim turned 90 and he is still with us. So that is a ray of hope for me personally, and it should God, be for all of us. God bless him. God bless him. A, um, man, but who, no, a man who notoriously disdains opera. Yes. Despite but, the fact that he basically writes them. This, but yeah, despite the fact that he writes things that are more intricate than, of the, of the pieces that I've done, in the most challenging categories, it's half and half Sondheim and opera. Like, honestly, it really has been that way. Um, but he's one of my rays of light just in general. But one of my other rays of light, um, speaking of Andrew Cuomo, are governors of very specific states that have really taken the bull by the horns when it comes to this set of circumstances that they've been handed. So my rays of light this week are 
Andrew Cuomo, Gavin Newsom, Andy Bashir in Kentucky, and right here in Illinois, Governor J.B. Pritzker. I do not feel hope or confidence when I listen to any sort of a federal update for current circumstances, but if you want to feel like things are going to be okay someday, I definitely recommend you tuning into the press conferences of the governors of Illinois, New York, California, uh, Michigan for Gretchen Whitmer, and then Andy Bashir of Kentucky. Those guys are going to be helpful. I'd avoid Ron DeSantis of Florida. Just I, I would also avoid. I mean, that's a general <laughs> rule. Like, just avoid DeSantis yeah. when you can. But, uh, but yeah, those governors in particular have been making me feel like we've got a driver at the wheel, uh, and it's it's been comforting. Well, I just want to do my part to contribute to the efforts um, and put it out there that any bear hunk that has no place to go because of the crisis. <laughs> You may shelter in place at my place. Oliver, how are you going to stay socially distanced, though? I'll just let them stay in one room for 14 days without any clothes on, and then as soon as uh, 14 days pass, then I will join them. I mean, technically, that's the science. That is the science we know. But so, it's important. Uh, the important key is the no clothes. As you know? long as there aren't eight more people in that room, too, then you'll be fine. <laughs> Depends All right. on who's writing the script. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you so much, guys. Good talking with you both. Good we'll chatting, guys. Stick around for a good call, bad call, but I'm going to end this segment now. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, no good calls or bad calls this week. I think we're just trying to make it through. That's it. This week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. General managers at WNUR are Henry Musco and Sonal Songby. Our announcer is Norm Modell at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Theme song, Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from OperaBase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And, of course, this podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings, Reston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you're still washing your hands, and you're going to have to yell, right, because you're six feet apart from everybody now. We're back next Monday, March 30, 9 p.m. Central, hopefully. More opera news, more hot takes, more pasta. I just love pasta. Join us.